0: Hello and welcome to episode number 297 of the Armin Show podcast where it is about understanding things learning more figuring things out scientists professors what we can learn about ourselves on this episode I am very glad to have this guest on the show accomplished individual interviewed many individuals like me professor of ethics runs an organizations teaches and consults with organizations and about ethics. Our guest today, Dr. Susan Leoto. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: I am glad to have you on. People know me always as casual, but early on when I communicate, there's a little bit of professionalism, but that's just me bringing both forms to the table. I'm very glad to have you on the show. I have seen much of your content and read your book, which here it is in... The screen. I like it, by the way. The even the cover is professional and also represents some bit of power. Black and white, like the color contrast, and it's very very clean and orderly. I like it. Thank you. Um, actually, on that, how much? Um, what were you looking to represent, just even with the the book and how it looks?
1: So a couple of things. First of all, I do want to give credit to the designers at Simon and Schuster. Um, they're mm-hmm. the artistic talent behind it. Um, But I talk about in, in the six forces that I believe drive all of the ethical conundrums we face today, no matter how personal or professional, the first is banishing the binary. And so actually this idea of black and white and showing some black letters on top of white and some white letters on top of black is sort of a way of saying there are some things in the world that are black and white ethically, like totally always straight up unacceptable, like racism or like sexual misconduct. Or like an assault on the Capitol. Um, but by and large, most things today are more in the gray, you know, some kind of mix of black and white. And we have to be mucking around in the gray, mucking around in the uncertainty and lack of clarity in order to get to identifying all the ethics, risks, and opportunities. So the cover is meant to, to try to suggest that.
0: I believe that is a very common framework to do things is to not look at the gray area, no nuance, everything is this or this. And that misses large points. I, I feel like we can't get to the nice things in life unless we include the middle, the parts of this, parts of this. We talk about that in the book as well. Uh, the ability to take partial elements of items and not have to just do 100% X or 100% Y, which makes sense. Like our bodies have 18,000 different things we're doing, even in our cells. If we had it just be this or we were just the energy machine, we wouldn't be efficient in all categories. Now, I would like to add on because I did not include in full detail, but you are professor at Stanford. You have a PhD in social policy from the London School of Economics and Political Science, JD from Columbia University Law School, MA in Chinese Studies from University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, and MA and two BAs from Stanford University as well. A whole, a whole package right there. The interesting one that stands out is MA in Chinese Studies. What led you in that direction to learn Chinese in that form.
1: Uh, well, I've always been really interested in China. I've been really interested in China culturally. Um, obviously China is one of the great powers in the world. So what China does in everything from artificial intelligence and the environment um, to human rights uh, and beyond matters in the world. Um, and so I was very, very interested in studying, but also China has such a long history and um, I was very, always very interested in learning the language, and um, both learning to read and write, and and learning to speak. Now, I'm not as good as I had hoped to be. I had, I have not been able to live in China, which I think is would be very helpful for my Chinese. Um, but I'm, I am a passionate student of China and the language. Which, um, I find it extraordinarily beautiful, and, and very, very interesting, and certainly very important to the ethics in the world. I don't think we can look at global ethics today in a borderless world only from a Western perspective.
0: Right. I had talked with Mauro Guillen. he's from Spain, and he, w- he had a book called 2030, talking about the next 10 years and where we're going, and China is a big part of what that book is about, and other individuals I've spoken with. It appears that the world will involve a lot of Chinese influence in the upcoming decade, which will affect the good or what we accept as morals or ethics in the upcoming time. Now, going backward to ethics, your book is called The Power of Ethics. This book is a real package. It was nice to go back to reading a full book and taking notes on it. I hadn't done that in a while, and it was nice to do. You can make the book your own in some way. Now, what led you to create a full book? Because I know some people who do research and they never end up writing a book. And I always kind of feel sad because it's like they did so much, but what led you to writing the whole book?
1: So first of all, the book is meant to be very accessible. And as you say, you can make it your own and it is intended to have everybody be able to make it their own. Um, and it is intended for everybody. It doesn't matter what level of education. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter whether you're the CEO of a company uh, or whether you're, you know, you're out of work right now and struggling to figure out what's going on in the middle of COVID. It's really um, meant to say that we all have a tremendous amount of power through our ethical decision-making and we all need to use it. So the mission of the book is to democratize ethics. And in fact, I got here by observing over the past 10 years, a number of trends. Um, The first is that the law is lagging further and further behind our reality, Um, our technological reality, our biotech reality, but even our social reality. The law is just not able to keep up with the challenges we face. An obvious one is, you know, the law isn't very good at regulating sort of the ills of social media. Um, But that gap between the guidance we get from the law, the places where the law is effective and our reality is getting bigger and bigger. And in part because tech is advancing faster and faster. So what are we going to replace that guidance with when we don't have the law to protect us and to offer guidance for our decision-making? Ethics takes a bigger and bigger space. So that was one thing. Um, the second is that I started to observe in news stories about 10, 12 years ago, that we see the same stories over and over again. And sometimes it's literally the same story. It's subprime mortgages in 2008, and it's bank one, and then bank two, and then bank three, and then you know everybody's <laughs> doing the same thing. And sometimes it's, um, for example, to stay in the corporate world for a minute, it's very large scale corporate scandals But actually, when we observe, when we study closely, they're all being driven by similar things. So Wells Fargo Bank, over 3.5 million fraudulent consumer accounts, or Cambridge Analytica, again, affecting consumers, or Volkswagen manipulating emissions testing software, again, affecting consumers. So I wanted to understand what drove these stories to take such grand scale um, to spread so far, and also to mutate into other forms of unethical behavior. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing is that many of us feel that the world is so complicated. Ethics just seems overwhelming. And what I wanted to do is to say, actually, I have found six forces that are applicable in almost every decision we make to a greater or lesser extent. And so if you can learn to recognize these six forces, which happens during the course of reading the book, it just becomes a reflex. There's no need to memorize. There's no need to study um the book is a bunch of stories and through reading those stories you just understand the way these forces work and you start to see them everywhere um it's a little bit like if you hear an unusual name then all of a sudden you see it on the side of a bus you know and you see it on a name tag and and somebody's (laughs) you overhear it in the elevator somebody's mentioning it well it's a little bit like that you start to see these six forces everywhere including the one i mentioned earlier about banishing the binary um But it's particularly important when we're in this very complicated world, for example, artificial intelligence or gene editing, or even threats to democracy. And it can seem that all of the knowledge about these things is being housed in the brains of a very few experts. And that may be the case, but we don't need to have those experts be the determiners of society's ethics too. And they shouldn't be. So again, this book is trying to give the power back to everyone you know, all of us, people from all walks of life to say, you don't need to be an expert in AI any more than I need to be an expert in the electricity that makes my toaster run in order to make toast in the morning. So, you know, join the conversation. And um, the book is meant to be an enjoyable series of stories with some accessible learning.
0: Is the concept such that the public would become more aware, maybe build up some of the nuance and understanding so that laws or what business executives decide is not such a big factor and they have to adjust to the public's greater understanding.
1: I certainly think that's part of it, um, but it isn't like I'm saying everybody needs to go out and be an expert in corporate ethics or in uh, gene ethics or in um, you know ethics of tech or anything. What I'm basically saying is we can, uh, first of all, make better decisions ourselves about things like, do I use 23andMe? And the phrase I use in the book is when and under what circumstances. It's, you know, in most cases, as I said earlier, it's not all or never, it's not yes or no. Um, It's when and under what circumstances, non-binary, nuance, looking for the opportunities and also looking to manage the risks. And as the public starts to make better and better decisions for themselves, they'll also be more and more aware of the decisions that are being made around them by government, by executives and start to say, well, you know, that doesn't look right and I know why. You know, I know that that's because they're doing, you know, this is happening and this is driving the spread of unethical behavior. So another one of my themes is contagion, Mm -hmm. but we just recognize that. We understand why it's not just sort of we're squeamish or we're angry. It's that we actually see what's going off the rails and why.
0: Right. I like that concept of contagion because you can spread anything, whether it's valuable or not too valuable. About the 23 and me, I like that section of the book because you talked about not not just the impact you have, but thinking of others around you as uh, stakeholders in, let's say you have your genetic information and now they have their genetic information. You could be putting them at risk. You can cause them to have maybe a criminal record they didn't have or find a child or family member they didn't know they had or wanted to know that they would have had. So it's more like uh, thinking with the group, how much of um, ethics is about taking into account the broader group, kind of like a collectivist?
1: So thing. Yeah, so the, the, the phrase that I use in the book is stakeholders and we get very good at thinking about what the impact of our ethics is on other people. Um, the big new thing in the book is to show that in today's world, other people isn't just you know, the person someone is having an affair with or you know, the, the very, very small group around them. Other people that we can have an influence on might be someone completely on the other side of the world who receives you know, our false information about COVID vaccines or on the upside, who receives an incredible tip about staying safe with COVID you know, or um, with 23andMe, the example is that now when we engage with some of these technologies, even just as ordinary consumers, I mean, after all, 23andMe was advertised in People Magazine and on Oprah. This is not meant to be an elite endeavor. Um, But when we engage with these kinds of products, for example, we will learn things, lots of things about ourselves that we cannot unknow. But because it's genetic, we might also learn things that affect other people. So for example, for example, we might learn that we have a, a terrible inheritable disease like Huntington's disease. Does that mean we owe it to tell our children that they might have inherited it? Does that mean we owe it to tell our partner or the children's uh, parents that you know that their child might have inherited it? Who else do we owe this information? Um, and as you say, there are stories, and I and I tell some in the book of people who through using these things, find out that their biological father is not their biological father. Um, and that sets all kinds of hairs running and in some cases really family breakdown. Um, you know, And also, as you pointed out, there are other sites that are coming on that can be used in conjunction with something like 23andMe. So this site I talk about in the book called GEDmatch, you know, uses this data and all of a sudden that's how the police found the California killer. So, you know, we may be okay with using these technologies without permission to find a serial killer, but maybe we're not so okay with having these technologies be able to use our DNA for other things that we haven't actually given permission for, or to find out things about other people who never even took the test or consented to taking the test.
0: Data is a big issue that comes to mind, and it connected back with me. I I recently spoke with Yancy Strickler, which is the co-founder of Kickstarter, and he said data, the increase in data is one of the biggest issues of the next decade, like everything will be collected. And so how does that connect with um, the risks associated with the ethics of the next decade? Does data take care of ethics? Does it just bring everything to light? Or is compromised
1: No, well, data, yeah, well, data certainly doesn't take care of ethics. So, so if we, if we just take a step back and think about a few of these six forces that I mentioned, the first is non-binary. So data isn't all good or all bad data used in the right way to seize opportunity and to mitigate risk can be fantastic. So data used for example, um, algorithms that can help detect, um, breast cancer, it's fantastic. Um, to help find, you know, facial recognition technology that is trained on data that can identify a terrorist in a crowd or that can find a lost child. Fantastic. Um, On the other hand, there is misuse of data. There are data privacy issues, and these are all very serious. And um, there are issues around consent for use of data. Uh, There are issues around bias with data, and that comes up in medical research. That comes up in facial recognition technology. So so that's the first force. The second, um, I would say, is that you know, we have to be careful. Um, one, of the second, one of the other forces I call crumbling pillars. And that's a, a coming back to the 23andMe example where society has been built on ideas like transparency and informed consent. One of the things that's happening with data is that we're consenting to something. For example, to watch Netflix or to do 23andMe or to go on Twitter. But we don't necessarily consent to all the things that can happen to our data, in part because the companies are not telling us, um, in part because we can't understand, but also in part because what they tell us on the day we consent could change. What happens if the company is sold and that data ends up being belonging to someone else? What happens if the law changes? So we end up in a situation where, I'll use an example of Amazon Amazon. Um, a lot of the Amazon products in their terms of service, they say, you know, if you continue to use our product, you are quote deemed to accept changes in terms of service. Well, unless you get up every day, brush your teeth and reread your Amazon terms of service, most of us don't have any idea whether what's happening to the data that they collected when we signed on to use Alexa or to use Echo Look or to, you know, or to have our Amazon Prime account, we don't really know what's happening to it. So it's a huge problem from the point of view of, of, of uh, destabilizing or dismantling classic ideas of informed consent.
0: That would be a terrible thing if eight years from now, everybody was waking up and rereading the terms of service and everything they signed up for just to make sure everything's all right.
1: Well, trust me, you wouldn't understand it anyway. Um, and just to give you a recent example, you know, obviously the, um, in the news recently has been Robinhood and so, um, and that's another example of not all good and not all bad, you know, it was not intended to be used to, as a weapon against hedge funds. Right. And on the other hand, the idea that individuals can have access to trading without commissions, that can be very interesting. But in any event, I went to see the terms of service, because obviously there were a number of different issues that came out of that um, story. And it's 33 microprint pages long. I do not understand a word of it and I have to say I spent many years on Wall Street as a lawyer and drafting complicated hundreds of page long agreements. And so if I'm not understanding it and I'm actually studying it for research, what do you think the odds are that the traders who are using the app, you know, even read it, let alone understand it. And I say that with complete compassion, you know, I I don't say that critically at all. These companies need to uh, in order to restore these pillars, these what I call this crumbling pillars as one of the six forces driving ethics, the companies need to tell us what we need to know in plain language and in a limited amount of language. So four or five sentences. I mean, the example I use that is kind of the iconic example is, you know, smoking kills on a cigarette package. Um, we need to know that about every one of these products we're using.
0: Right. You mentioned in the book that it should not just be informed to you, but the consumer should be able to understand what it is. So it's like a healthy communication versus, oh, maybe we can trick that. Maybe we can uh, sneak something in. Yes.
1: I mean, transparency that you, uh, you raised a really good point. um, And I'm glad that you, that you picked that up. I mean, transparency and informed consent, it's not a dumping exercise. It's not because you unloaded everything your lawyers told you, you should say to me, you know, on your website that I have been informed, informed means I understand. I mean, to put it simply making sure that a company is transparent requires a user-friendly approach. It is about the recipient. It is not about the person delivering the information.
0: This is a very valid point. Whenever I hear a topic, it always takes me to, I relate everything back to people's relationships and their self-understanding and how it applies to law or ethics or other values. And so... One thing that comes to mind is what characteristics, how did you come to this place to see things, which to me looks clear, but it's like my friend Gary has special uh, self-awareness of people. He can feel their feelings. After he says something is super obvious to me, before he said it, I have no clue. Yours is in the category of ethical understanding. After you describe something is super clear, before you said it, it was sort of there, but nobody was describing it in full. Where does that quality come from?
1: First of all, a lot, a lot, a lot of reading and listening and talking and engaging and rolling up my sleeves and um, working with people and companies and NGOs of all sizes and serving on lots of different boards and really stepping back and saying, um, and this is a personal thing, I'm a synthetic thinker. So I'm always looking at what does everything have in common? How can we simplify? You know, and so um, I personally, and and there are a lot of people who would disagree with this. I don't really believe in tech ethics or, you know, family ethics or, you know, and in fact, a new project I'm working on will um, pick up bits of tech and family and the workplace and the playground, uh, you know, and um, the digital world, you know, because all of these questions that we ask kind of come together in our lives. So it makes no sense to say I'm going to have tech ethics for my social media problems, but my social media problems link up to my mental health, they link up to my family and my friends, they link up to my professional world. Um, and so we, we can't have these artificial barriers and so I was looking to really step back and understand what do all of these different problems have in common uh, and how can I make, how can I democratize ethics? How can I make it accessible? And that is really my personal mission. It's my life's mission and it's the book's mission to democratize ethics, to make it accessible to everyone.
0: It makes sense. When you're a prolific in a category, you see more examples of whatever you are coming into contact with. And then it starts to be like a blinking red light. Like this is an issue, like the crumbling pillars it might look like items are crumbling underneath the fabric of society in some form, but until you are touching it regularly, like, oh, this is the thing I need to pinpoint that is breaking down in the next decade, what is a large crumbling pillar that we should be worried about?
1: So of the six forces that I described, and just to quickly go through them. So the vanishing binary, the contagion, how ethics spread for the good or the ill, Scattered power, so that comes back to how much power we all have and how well or not so well we tether it to our ethics. These crumbling pillars of transparency and informed consent. Um, Blurred boundaries, which is sort of man, you know, human machine, human animal, and and then truth. And we can talk separately about truth. Um, um, But I think one of the most important things at stake now that will determine the next 10 years is will we recommit to truth? Or in the book, I use the term compromised truth. We cannot come to tolerate compromised truth, whether that is sort of fake news and all its variants, whether it is the denial of scientific fact as it appears today. Now, obviously, science evolves. um, But if we don't have a common view of what is fact, and if we don't have a way to exchange diverse opinions and understand that facts and Opinions are very different. They're both important, but they're not the same thing. Then we are in very big trouble for all kinds of things ranging from democracy to our ability to handle a pandemic to our ability to manage ethically the most important cutting edge technology like artificial intelligence and gene editing.
0: On that point about the pandemic. There's a very recent occurrence as far as some people are getting the vaccine to older individuals and they might be the first ones able to travel. What ethical issues come up with the ordering period of who will be able to travel or do things first based on having vaccinations?
1: So you ask a a question that has many complicated prongs. So I'll choose a few and feel free to ask me about others. Okay. Okay. So this is a terribly complicated situation um, because we don't have sufficient supply. And so if we had sufficient supply and everybody who wanted a vaccine could get one, we would have a different set of priority issues. Most of the countries are prioritizing based on saving lives and based on making sure that the uh, intensive care units of hospitals are under less stress, so fewer people dying. And because the data so far has shown that older people are at greater risk, that has been the priority. And also clearly people who are, for example, taking care of COVID patients. So frontline medical workers who are in those COVID wards. But also terribly important from my point of view, and you and others may disagree, we have people who are keeping society running and saving lives in a very different way. Our fire departments, our police forces, our teachers, um, our mental health uh, professionals you know our grocery store workers, our delivery um, teams, who are out there um, every day making society run, making sure we can access food and medicine, making sure we can actually, um, you know, get help if we need the police, etc. So they clearly need to be um, ranked up there. But it's a huge problem that we don't have um, we don't have access to enough supply, and that it is very unpredictable who's going to get the supply when. The other larger global problem is that we have much more supply in the Western countries because they've bought it all up early. The UK certainly bought a lot up early. Israel you know, um, that is really very far along in vaccinating bought up a huge supply earlier. Canada is reputed to have five times more than the supply they need to vaccinate everyone. Uh, and I believe that they've said they will donate some of that or sell some of that to developing countries. But then on the other hand, you have dismally low rates in places like Africa. Um, so you have all kinds of inequality. Um, and then there are other areas of you know who's going to make vaccines mandatory. For example, you mentioned travel. The CEO of Qantas, the Australian uh, airline, has said that he believes that people should be required to be vaccinated to travel by air. Well, that makes air travel dependent on the luck of where you are in the vaccine line. And that also means, at the extreme, that again, what happens to people in places like Africa or in South America if there's less access? Are we gonna say that they have less access to air travel? So that becomes, I mean, these issues are fraught with inequality all over the place and not just at the level of who gets the vaccine but at the level of who gets to operate and how in society. Um, But I think back to this non-binary, until we have herd immunity or vaccines and confidence, that the vaccines can handle the variants that that put society at risk and the evolving variants we're going to have to not look at this as vaccinated or not we're going to have to look at it is what are all the things we need to do to stay safe still need to wear masks socially distance, contact tracing uh, hand washing gel all the things we've been talking about reducing travel um, and everybody's going to have to do their part with or without vaccines particularly until we understand whether the vaccines prevent transmission.
0: Right. Early on, it was shaky when you were describing the healthcare professionals. I once had my friend, Dr. Mariam Bakira on from New York, and she was there during the first uh, wave. And all I was thinking was healthcare people need to be highly focused first for their well-being because they're attending to everybody else. Of and course. It was a little shaky at first. Uh,
1: it wasn't a little shaky. Let me just come here <laughs> if I may um there are uh, there are things that happen in the world that we genuinely cannot predict okay and the ethics being a bit behind on the ethics is a little more understandable i talk in the book about you know one of the four parts of this this forward framework i have that anyone can learn in a matter of minutes um, is information you know and i talk about um when we look back at a crisis you know what did people know and what could they have known and what should they have known well, we know from all kinds of really um, high-quality news reporting that it was very well known that a pandemic was a risk. It was entirely unacceptable, and forgive me for a bit of finger wagging here, but it was entirely unacceptable that we ended up in a situation, even back a year ago, you know, in March, where our healthcare workers were reusing masks, you know, not sufficiently equipped with PPE where we saw fast food workers literally using diapers for masks. I mean, that was a known risk and an unacceptable management of the supply, including ventilators, by the way. So, uh, you know, so so I think we have to be careful about what part of this is is really, you know, we're just caught off guard and we couldn't possibly have known and what part we should have known, could have known, or in this particular case actually did know.
0: This is very true. I always think about the themes as we were describing, so one of those is that when I see a person who's caught off guard or too much uh, reaction in public, that's like shocked. I'm always like, we know these items, whatever it is. Let's say Bill Gates was talking about it five years ago. Epidemiologists have been discussing it mm-hmm. for a long time how the animal to human transfer can occur. We and saw Ebola
1: one... in West Africa. We right. saw the tragedy of Ebola in West Africa. I was yeah, mm-hmm. right. Exactly.
0: So we see these examples, but where it's it's over there, but then in a global world that it's over there is becoming less and less accurate because it's not over there. It's actually here the whole time. It's an interesting concept.
1: Yeah, and that phrase over there is very interesting. Um, I don't think there's any over there anymore. And we've heard a lot this uh, expression, you know, nobody is safe until everybody's safe when it comes to the pandemic. I would just say my own view, and I'm just about to publish a piece in Medium about this, is that uh, again, on this topic of democratizing ethics, is that you know nobody's safe with ethics until everybody's safe. You know, when we make our our decisions, unless we're making our decisions with a broad, as you pointed out earlier, a very broad group of stakeholders of people who are, are affected or potentially affected in mind, you know, we're not safe either
0: that theme that comes to me from that is that if you have four people doing, quote, nice things or in a good framework and then a fifth person, that's like, I can take all their flowers from their yard or something. Mm-hmm. It's suddenly, it doesn't matter that now a bunch of flowers, that person could take more flowers than they could take before because these four are unwittingly saying, oh, here you go. It doesn't really okay. work in that context. Yeah. And then to the earlier topic of the like tech ethics and family ethics and breaking it down to categories, that makes me think of when a person tries to set up a set of rules specific to them somewhere in the book was an item about that but i've never seen it be healthy because it's almost like they're trying to say okay this is how things are not in the real world but for my little group this is what we have to accept you'll accept right i hope so
1: yeah so that's interesting so this comes back to this question of truth and um and reality so i you know i use truth and reality interchangeably and and i always say and in particular to my students you know you can do your ethics outside of reality all you want, but reality is going to come back to bite, right? So you can cherry pick the most convenient facts about COVID. Uh, you can um, you know curate your social media world uh, and you know show only the parts of yourself that you want other people to see, which is perfectly fine and something you know lots of people do for fun if nothing else. But at the end of the day, you know we don't get to separate out and pretend. That the sort of the, the less ethical parts don't exist. And we don't get to pick and choose the parts of reality that we live in. So unfortunately, today things are really difficult for a lot of people. And my heart goes out to so many people who've lost jobs, who've lost loved ones, who are dealing with illness, who are dealing with the effects of long COVID. I mean, it's just so difficult. But unless we all recognize the full reality of all of this then we are not going to be able to behave ethically. And by the way, we're not going to be able to dig ourselves out of the economic and the health and the democratic and the societal challenges we face.
0: Right. We need to follow the trail of good in some form. One thing that comes to mind, just as you're describing that is, this is for a bigger picture view of my guest today, is the reason I feel that you are so accomplished is because you represent for such with the force of nature, that's how I think those are directly connected because the same person that's like ah, whatever, I don't know if they should have had so much a uh, quote accomplishments because we're trying to represent for something, and reality is always like that. So that's a good feature. I'm always glad about Earth. Mm-hmm. Long live Earth. Now you have a framework called the two by four for checking if uh, something is ethical on the fly, and this takes into account most important principles for something, the two of them, the two most important and irreparable consequences, the two most important forces and two alternatives. And you can take that into account for anything like, should I vaccinate? Um, Should I take the keys away from an older person driving away? Um, Could we take a current example in 2021 and apply the two by four to that?
1: So the the ethics on the fly chapter of the book, chapter seven, is really about uh, gathering up all the learning in the earlier part of the book and saying, you know, there are some times when you really want to sit down and as a family or as a group of friends, or even on your own, really grapple with a a critically important ethical decision. But by and large, most of us have to make a lot of decisions really quickly, either because we don't have time or because um, the world is is sort of saying it's now or never, um, or because frankly, things are not that important. So ethics on the fly is really about triage. If you think about almost like an emergency room. um, And I I came up with this very straightforward, easily recallable, you know, you're right. It's sort of two times, it's two times four or four times two, basically it's two. So pick sort of your two most important principles. Um, And I don't ever dictate to people what should be important to them. So somebody's, you know, somebody's principles may be truth and compassion and honesty um, and uh, diversity. Um, Somebody else's might be generosity, uh, commitment, it just depends. Um, But of your your sort of set of principles, and I recommend in the book that, you know, you sort of use the book as an opportunity to think about what your principles are. You pick the two that are the most relevant to a particular situation. So the example you gave about taking the car keys away from an elderly grandparent, say, um, safety comes to mind. Um, but also respect or autonomy for that for the individual right so you pick the two principles um, you pick the two forces of the sixth in the book and it' and again um, it's it's hard to talk about it for people who haven't read it but they become just second nature um, so for that it might be um, scattered power you know anybody with some car keys has an awful lot of power to do good or to do harm um, So, um, and the other thing is alternatives. I'm always trying to say, whenever we face an ethical conundrum, what are the alternatives? Well, a simple one in that case is, you know, is is Uber available? Can the person afford it? Is it available? Is there public transportation? Is there someone, you know, who can help drive them? Or can they just reduce the driving? You know, can they drive only when it's light out and only in zones that are more like 30 miles an hour, but not on the highway? So again, not binary, all or nothing. Um, but there are a lot of examples today where, um, first of all, the question is just not that important. So an example is for me is Netflix. Like, I know the company doesn't sell my data. I know I'm not giving them my DNA, you know, or my client confidential information. Uh, and so I just click, I agree. And I don't really worry too much about it, right? But on the other hand, if I, you know, if I were going to use 23andMe, that I would think about a little more. And I would say, okay, um, would this, you know, I can go through the 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 exercise, um, but I might even think about it more than that and just say, okay, this can have lasting consequences, as we discussed. Um, and certainly, um, uh, similarly, so, so there are two categories of ethics on the fly. One is the Netflix, meaning not that important. But the other is where the answer is really clear. So take wearing masks with COVID. Um, You know, we know that if we don't do that, we're putting ourselves and other people at risk. So our safety, you know, most people have safety as a principle or health or health and safety. Mm -hmm. I don't even need any more than that. I just know that, you know, it's not, I can't put somebody else at risk. And by the way, it's not that complicated. So, um, and then the final piece of it is always to ask, what are the alternatives? Because very often we sort of get ourselves in this box of we think we have a choice that is defined by the question, but there are other ways out. Um, Now, wearing a mask is tricky. There really aren't very many alternatives. You can stay home, you know? um, You can, um, you know, you can really socially distance and stay outside and be 100% sure that you're very far from someone. But, you know, sometimes there are not alternatives. very often there are alternatives very often there are and it's a question of just um training our mind to to recognize them
0: as far as the masks and the science behind spreading of contagion or virus there is a lot of science behind it and if you share this with some individuals who are not about the numbers or research there's like a wall between you and them does ethic have Ethics have a place there or how does that like uh, connection happen in some form or is that Walter It's a great question. It's
1: a great question Um, and it comes back to what I was saying earlier about compromised truth. We all need to come to a point where we restore the trust in science, we restore trust in institutions and we restore trust in each other. And I believe that by democratizing ethics, by having everybody use their power for ethics, we will rebuild that trust. We will heal as a nation, we will heal as, um, as groups, as colleagues, as families. Um, but you know, denying science, uh, denying truth, all ethics collapses. Ethics hinge on truth. There's no such thing as alternatively factual ethics. So it all comes back to, can we we all need to be able to agree on what is a fact and what is an opinion and we need to agree on you know the science what science tells us now we might have different interpretations of what to do about the science or we might have different experiences with the science so for example you know if it's 60 degrees out that's a fact but i may be cold at 60 degrees and you may be warm at 60 degrees so we need to acknowledge that but until we can come to a common agreement that facts matter, that ethics has to be grounded in truth, we're in very, very serious trouble as a society. And the, the direct reason is that we um, compromise truth is the great disconnector. It's going to, you know, it, it really destroys institutional and societal and individual social um, connection.
0: It creates this wonderful wall. It can be with science. It can be with just a family member who doesn't accept certain things. It can be anybody who puts a certain group of this is family ethics, this is tech ethics. This is our little framework. That's true. And then one of the best ways to improve upon that is to reach out to people. Usually the individuals who would have that philosophy, they're not those who are reaching out to others and trying to figure out more and expand their framework. It's more, this is what has worked for me and I'm afraid of elsewhere
1: and fueled by social media algorithmic silos, right? You know, um, really turbocharged by that, yeah.
0: There's a bunch of these algorithmic silos, in fact. Do you agree? I do agree, I agree also, I agree, oh, we agree. We don't agree with them, who is them? We don't even see them, what is that? That's a different framework, that's interesting. Now, speaking of reaching out to other individuals on the ethics incubator, my pronunciation is great today, but you reach out to many individuals and have spoken with them. Uh, novelist Salman Rushdie, former Senator, Senator Russ Feingold, Jin Ching. Yeah, uh, Jin Ching,
1: yeah.
0: Performing artist. many, many individuals. Um, you're reaching out to many people. Have you always reached out to a variety of individuals throughout your existence? Is this more of a recent thing and um, what kind of feeling does that give you?
1: So I, I always have. Um, and it's partly just sort of who I am. I'm really curious about people. I really want to learn from people sort of how they see the world. And um, but it's also something that I train myself to do as somebody who's trying to teach, as somebody who's trying to advise, as somebody who's you know, um we had a you know a preliminary conversation, and I think one of the first things I said to you is I always welcome feedback, right? So um, so I really am very, very curious about people and I love to bring um, many different people from all walks of life and from all different intellectual and um, personal and philosophical and religious and cultural perspectives to things. And my six forces that drive ethics hold up for everybody uh, and in all situations, I believe, but, it's, but different people will pick and choose and prioritize differently or have different principles for themselves. Um, and I think it's really, really important to, listen to how somebody else has lived something or how somebody else sees what's really going on with something.
0: Mm-hmm. This makes me think of that, I have a few descriptors that come to mind for myself. I always think of myself as fearless, creative and non-contextual. Those are three terms I like to associate with myself. One of yours would be considered that comes to mind. I feel like, do you have any um, terms you like to associate yourself with that you represent that?
1: So definitely curious um, and definitely, um, you know, I sort of persevere until I see connections between things. So that's not a single word, but I am, you know, like I said earlier, a synthetic thinker, I'm always looking for the connections between things and, um, and how we can see uh, patterns and how we can simplify. And that's not just sort of an abstract intellectual endeavor by simplifying, we invite many more people to the table. So again, back to democratizing, You know, we don't have to be an AI expert. We don't have to be an expert in family dynamics in order to have an opinion on a whole wide variety of ethics, in order to enjoy it, the debate, in order to participate and contribute um, and in order to make better decisions and have a better influence on the world around us.
0: Mm-hmm. When you mention AI, it reminds me that you're on an AI board and many other boards, which is a wonderful way to contribute your thoughts to a variety of groupings that's the high quality I endeavor also the
1: definitely my privilege
0: right Uh. you had mentioned like a networking mind I have found in life the people I've connected with most pretty much are always those who have a networking mind where they link concepts or like scientists at the Santa Fe Institute where it's like multidisciplinary science and -hmm. they connect economics and physics in some form because it kind of doesn't go back to that thing of just grouping into one small, this is how things are. And re- reality includes all the things. So if we don't include all the things, we might not feel it today, but maybe in five years or 10 years, it'll show back up. Or even for like people who post on social media and then uh, it feels good for now, but maybe eight years from now it looks funny or they're like, what did I do? That's a valid point. Another thing that came to mind about yourself is that you're representing what you're describing, which is what we tend to do as people. So. The way you are describing ethics and how to think about it, I noticed you bringing that forth in your, the way you, you're considerate. You're taking into account, oh, um, I, I would accept feedback. That's a key healthy way of um, sharing with others. And then my description is, it'll be there later, but right now, there's many of items that you represent that you're describing in the book which is a cool exemplification, I would say. Well, Thank you. It's a nice feature because if they didn't match, I never see it not match though, which is good. Most people have congruence between, it's hard to describe one thing and then be something else. It's not- not But I will
1: say this, I mean, I certainly don't claim to be more ethical than anybody else. And I certainly don't claim to be perfect. And so I just want to say for everybody, it is really, really important to me that we also banish this word perfection from our vocabulary. It is really a destructive word. It is not uh, an incentive for better ethical behavior. It is in fact a driver of unethical behavior and not to mention a whole roster of mental health issues. So um, I really, really dislike perfection. And one of the reasons that it drives unethical behavior is if you think about it, perfection is not possible. So when we bang our head against a wall, so to speak, to try, there are only a couple of ways um, this can go. The first is that you cheat in order to achieve it because it can't be achieved without cheating. So that's kind of everything from manipulated sales numbers to, uh, doping in athletics, right? Um, or the second is that you just keep trying and trying and trying and trying and thinking you're going to get there and you don't. And that's where the mental health consequences come in, where you just literally wear yourself down sometimes emotionally, sometimes physically, sometimes intellectually, sometimes professionally or personally, sometimes all of the above. But perfection is really a problem. So I don't claim to be perfect. Um, I certainly make a lot of mistakes. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is um, ethical resilience. We really all, through the same tools that I give in the book, the same framework and the same six courses, we can recover when we go off the rails and we can help find our bearings when we have to figure out how we're going to respond to someone else going off the rails. So it's really important to me that um, that everyone sort of see that you know we all make mistakes. We all have better judgment with 2020 hindsight, um, but we can get better and better at avoiding those or making those mistakes easier to rebound from. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a lot of value in even communicating it along the way. I don't. I have this issue. Um, This is something I have erred upon. I am trying this. All these little bits of communication and listening are the issue because then when you cut those out, out of fear of looking a certain way or that you won't, uh, you'll look weak, whatever that might be. Now it gets worse and worse into a little abyss of uh, non-reality, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. It's non-reality again.
0: We don't want to avoid reality in some form.
1: No, and we can't. If we want to recover from ethical mistakes, um, the, the first step is to get back into reality. In other words, to tell the truth and take responsibility. And if we do that, we can you know, move on. We can make a plan. Other people know where they stand with us. So again, we can rebuild trust. They know that we're not trying to hide something. They know that we're acknowledging our responsibility. They know how they can act around us. So, um, it, you know, again, it doesn't matter where you are on the ethical decision-making um, spectrum, whether you're thinking about a decision that you haven't yet made or whether you're trying to recover from one that maybe you regret a little bit. Truth is always the starting point.
0: Right. The sunlight. The sunlight opens it up. Who are some of the individuals who have affected your ethical viewpoints or understanding? Do any people come to mind? I read some in your acknowledgments, but are there any people you would to represent for
1: oh i'm so first of all i'm so blessed to learn so much from my students um and in the process of this book um which is my wonderful agent said took a village you know from my editor um stephanie ferris at simon and schuster and from my agent kathy robbins and from others who were and um involved with the book I'm um, lisa Sweetingham, who was you know really instrumental in um in the execution um, so so I, but I've also just learned from so many people that I've read over the years. And some of them have been dead for centuries. Um, and some of them have been guests in my class. Um, and some of them have been you know, terrible, have committed terrible acts, but I've learned from their terrible acts. But there are a few um, writers whom I particularly admire in terms of how they're able to bring the ethics underpinning the world to light. And I do highlight them in the book. One is um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, presidential biographer, and also Robert Caro, another presidential biographer. Um, And from Doris Kearns Goodwin, I would just say, you know, she wrote the the wonderful um, team of rivals. And so one of the recommendations in the book is that we should all have our own team of rivals like Abraham Lincoln did. Uh, We should all have people around us who are willing to challenge us. um, And not just, as you said earlier, not just create our own silo By having people around us who completely agree with us, Um, and Robert Caro did, you know, obviously the very famous and most brilliant and award-winning series of um, uh, multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. You know, I go into at length in in one of the chapters on contagion, and really, as much to honor him, frankly, as to as the learning. He's just extraordinary.
0: That example, by the way, was quite interesting because it was. I guess shocking that later on, he said, "Okay, yes, part of this election was stolen this way. This is what happened. He said
1: very specifically, he said, I just need to find a certain number of votes. You know, where have we heard that recently? You know, Uh, and I mean this in the most nonpartisan way, by the way, I'm an independent. I'm not I you know, I'm not. But but, you know, a lot of the contagion, a lot of the things that we saw with Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democrat um, and who did many good things. Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, etc. cetera. We, um, you know, I think that was learning that was very much relevant in recent political times.
0: We can see like the exact, it almost looks like a copy pattern recognition thing. There could yes. be more difference to make it look more realistic. It almost looks like a copy and paste to the-
1: I know, and when I was looking for how can I, do this? How can I have one story that's political? Because the book is a whole range of everything from, you know, medical science and opioid addiction to the Boeing uh, tragedies. I mean, it's just a whole wide variety of things. So I only wanted one political story and I wanted to make the point of contagion of unethical behavior. And so I was, you know, really looking for something. And then the more I read that, the more it just felt like I was able to show what I wanted to show, which is that this learning is timeless. This learning, these six forces were there in Abraham Lincoln's day. They were there in Lyndon Johnson's day, and they were there in President Trump's day, and they're there today in President Biden's day. And what I'm saying is, let's recognize these six forces. Let's use our power because President Biden and Vice President Harris cannot do this alone. They cannot restore moral decline. They cannot restore trust. They cannot repair the threats to democracy alone.
0: One thing you just reminded me of with the Boeing example, and similar examples of looking at a company or maybe segments of government is how valuable it is that once in a while they are looked at in detail. I once read a book called Samsung Rising that looked into the uh, framework that Samsung has and how connected it is to South Korea and the family structure. If there aren't individuals who look into the details of Boeing's decisions, it's almost like there are these private entities that are in gated communities that a lot of items can happen if left alone to their own devices at all times.
1: So Boeing is an interesting story and it's in there for a couple of reasons. It's in the book to show that some things are binary. I mentioned racism and sexual misconduct. Well, Boeing is a case, as you all know, where you know, there were two deadly crashes, one in Indonesia, one in Ethiopia, on these 737 MAX 8 planes within months of each other. And Boeing could not explain why. And to me, that is an absolute, you know, binary. The planes should be grounded. 60 plus countries agreed. But the CEO, the then CEO of Boeing, went to President Trump and said, I would fly in these planes, please let me keep flying these planes. And thankfully, President Trump said, absolutely not. But to me, that was a the binary, so it's, it's in there to show that there are still some situations that are binary until you can explain what happened and fix it and make sure that it's not going to happen again, you know, that's binary. But the other reason it's in there is that all of the media and there were hundreds if not thousands of stories about Boeing over many months talked about this so-called MCAS software that was supposedly ultimately the cause of these terrible tragedies. Yeah, and um, the problem is that this was not a software problem, in my view. Again, we need to sort of lift our gaze. We need to make connections, and we need to say, okay, how did that happen? It happened by failed decision making throughout the organization. It happened because the regulators, the FAA in this case, did not do their job properly, and among many things, allowed Boeing to do way too much self-certification. I mean, some would be understandable, but way too much. Um, But the whole decision process at Boeing and the forces driving the decision, as I talk about the forces driving the spread of unethical behavior, things like greed and pressure and competition and fear. Um, they were, if they're there for MCAS, they were there for everything else. So even if they fixed the MCAS problem, I personally don't feel safe getting in a Boeing plane. I don't know what else could have been, you know, affected by this systemic uh, failure of ethics throughout the decision process.
0: I like the point you brought up there about how if they were there for one element, they're there for all of them. Yeah, I've described this many a time in such that like, I feel like the, the way someone drives on the freeway is the same way they respond to an email, is the same way they uh, do their workouts. Like there's certain themes that spread across all day. So if I see someone driving a certain way on the freeway, I feel like I have a general idea uh, how it would be like working with them on a project almost.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I, I could generalize in that way, but I can do it in a different way, which is to say, we don't get a net ethics score. So it's not okay to say, okay, well, these two were the bad things, but everything else is good. So therefore we're okay. It's just not okay to have people dying in unexplained plane crashes on top of it that happened because training was inadequate because equipment was sold in the wrong way or in particular to sort of low cost airlines. You know, equipment that should have been mandatory was kind of sold as a luxury item. Um, you know, that kind of thing is just completely unacceptable. And um, you know, to your earlier point about silos, that our, our sense of truth and our ethics can be affected by the kinds of silos, whether it's not having a team of rivals, having only people around us who agree with us or social media silos you know, algorithmically Or beyond or because we choose only to read certain things and only to watch certain news shows. Um, The opposite kind of happens here which is is that you can't put a a fence around the damage when you have systemic unethical decision making. It's going to affect, it's going to spread and it's going to break down any silos um, and it's going to mutate into other problems. So you'll get a different problem and many different problems, not just the MCAS on the 737
0: MAX 8s. Right. It has to make its way around. I always have this concept that if there's a certain quality that's there, if it's not following a good ethical framework, let's say, it has to make its way out. It'll somehow get out, and now you're like, oh, great. I have to deal with this. What is this? But it it had no choice. That's all that was there. If there's a a field of dust and wind comes around, that's all you're going to get potentially is, is the dust. Contagion, in a way like the virus, which we are, the numbers are improving. Long live Earth in some form in that regard, which is good. What is um, a way that the average individual can improve their ethical framework if they were starting from scratch? Uh,
1: Well, first of all, the book is really, even just the first chapter, gives a forward framework that can become a habit within a matter of, you know, Sort of half an hour of reading the first chapter. Um, But it's all about becoming more thoughtful um, and about saying, you know, ethics matter. And so I I maybe there aren't any sort of grand declarers in society of right and wrong. But it's about starting to say to this point about stakeholders, like what will be the impact or the potential impact of my decision on other people. And little by little, we get very automatic about thinking about people that are further from us or people that are sort of down the road or only connected to us technologically. Um, But it's, I mean, this framework is really, you know, it's it's four words and it really just becomes a reflex. Mm -hmm.
0: The last thing I would like to check because I always like to put it in conclusion. If you had a one sentence opportunity with a megaphone to the planet, what would you tell them about what you have studied?
1: I would say that ethical decision-making ethics uh, is the greatest opportunity of our time, but if we fail to heed it, it will become the greatest global systemic risk of our time because for the better or for the worse, everything else depends on it, whether we're talking about climate change or pandemics or democracy or family relationships or AI or beyond.
0: This is a wonderful thing. Dr. Susan Leoto. I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show and maybe future ones of the Armand Show podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be here today and really, really nice to meet you.
0: Same as well. Great to speak with you. And we are <laughs>